1971, a little book called Go Ask Alice made its way into the world. It was attributed to an anonymous author and billed as the real diary of a teenage drug addict, detailing the many ups and downs of her relationship with various substances. The book was a shock to readers everywhere, and the fact that it was presented as nonfiction surely contributed significantly to that shock factor. But there's a plot twist. Years after the publication of Go Ask Alice, questions about its true authorship came to the surface. The voice behind the so-called diary was, in fact, not a teenage drug addict at all, but an extremely religious therapist named Beatrice Sparks, who would go on to publish several other books claiming to be written by troubled teenagers. This revelation changed the whole conversation about Go Ask Alice. Rather than an upsetting account of a real girl's life that could be read as a cautionary tale for teens considering experimenting with drugs, the book was more often viewed after that as propaganda and a literary hoax. We spend lots of time discussing all of this, and whether or not we think it even matters, on the episode you're about to hear. We also talk about the parts of the teenage experience that we think the author captures well, consider how Go Ask Alice may have played into drug and alcohol education, point out its parallels to the reality show The Hills, and shout out to our elementary school librarians. Frankly, I can't believe it's taken me a whopping 58 episodes to shout out to mine. I had such a blast talking with fellow book lover Abby Wright for episode 58. Abby is the senior editor of Read It Forward, an awesome community and content hub for, well, readers. Check it out at readitforward.com and follow along on Twitter at readitforward and on Instagram at readitforward and at bookbento. Find more from Abby on her website, abbywrites.com, on Twitter at abbywright, and on Instagram at abbywright1. All of those are Abby with an E. In addition to our love of books, Abby and I share a similar sense of humor, and it was so fun talking with her about this wild ride of a read. I'm especially grateful to Abby for being so candid and honest about her own experiences with addiction and recovery, which you'll hear more about over the next hour or so. As always, I'd love to encourage you to get more involved in the SSR community. If you aren't already, please be sure that you're following us on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast. If you want to step up your support for the show, you might also consider becoming a Patreon sponsor. For just a few dollars a month, you'll get access to a bunch of exclusive rewards, including newsletters, free shipping on merch, bonus episodes, book club chats, and more. Get all the details by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. A big thanks goes out to all of the Patreon sponsors tuning into this episode. Another great way to help support the podcast is to leave a five-star rating or review on iTunes. These really do make a big difference in helping SSR to get noticed. I also love seeing you share the episodes you're listening to on Instagram stories. Don't forget to tag at SSRpod when you do. Don't forget to check out Libra FM as well. Libra FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libra.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libra.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. When I shop for audiobooks on Libra.fm, I support my local Brooklyn indie Books Are Magic. But you can choose any store you want. Audiobooks are a great way to fit more reading into your busy schedule, and Libra FM is a great way to find those audiobooks. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. 
So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Abby. Welcome to SSR. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. We're chatting on a Tuesday morning. I'm looking out. It's sort of like a gloomy New York, and this is definitely like a really happy part of my day to get to talk to you. Well, I'm so thrilled that you asked, and um, I know we both have this love of books in common, so it's so fun to get to spend a Tuesday talking about books. What else is better than that? Seriously. And Tuesdays are typically my least favorite day of the week, which I know is weird to say since my podcast releases every Tuesday. Other than that, I don't like Tuesdays, so. I'm glad that we're talking today. And we're talking about Go Ask Alice. I have to say that you were the one who suggested this book to me. I don't think it was on the list of suggestions that I originally sent to you, although a few listeners have requested it. So I'm really glad that we're having the opportunity to chat about it today. And I'd love if you would share a little bit about your experience with this book and why you suggested that we read it for this episode. Yeah. So when you talked about your podcast and told me about, you know, think back to your middle school days, this book had a crazy waiting list at our library, our middle school library. And I went to an all-girls school and Mrs. Regan, the librarian, was like the gatekeeper on this book. And there was a waiting list as long as her arm. And it was one of those books that had like that buzz, like, oh my God, have you read Go Ask Alice yet? It's so crazy. So I remember just like feeling that gossip and um, that sort of like excitement to read a book. Um, which I think is like encapsulated now in pop culture a little bit, like the buzzy books. This was definitely the buzzy book of the seventh grade at the Agnes Irwin School. So I wanted to just revisit it. I had it in my mind that it was like this horrific read and so crazy. And I was dying to reread it as an adult and see like, okay, does this measure up? Well, I have never read it before, but I do have a very distinct memory. I think I was probably in fifth grade because I was in elementary school. I remember being in my elementary school library. My librarian was Mrs. Talarico, since you shared the name of your librarian. I don't think I've ever shouted her out on the podcast before. Sure, she's not listening, but Mrs. Talarico, if you are, thanks for making me a reader. This is your moment. So by fifth grade, I had probably been through like most of the paperback series on the shelf. I'd been through like most of the top hits, everything that the other kids in my grade were reading. And I was just kind of like wandering, you know, wandering the library, looking at those kind of like more random shelves. Um, I was not really that into nonfiction books, but there were these areas of the library that were dedicated mostly to like research. So if we as a class were to come in and like work on a report or something like that, where Mrs. Tallarico would take us. So I was wondering what I can only assume now was some sort of like, I don't know, I don't want to say social sciences, but maybe like a social issues part of the library, maybe a drugs and alcohol specific part of the library. And most of the books on the shelf were more like textbook size, like a larger spine, um, maybe a bigger trim size if we want to go publishing speak. And I remember I remember seeing this tiny little book like crammed on the shelf and I was like oh that actually looks like the kind of book like the size of a book that I would read maybe I should grab that one it's maybe the only book in the library that I haven't read so I climbed up and I grabbed it and I was like whoa there's nothing on this cover why is it just black with white print on it this is so strange and then I remember seeing that it was attributed to anonymous and I was like oh 
what does this mean? Like, I don't even know. I don't think I even know what this word means. And I put it back on the shelf, but I never forgot about it. It was always in my head. Weirdly, I never had a conversation with another kid through middle school or high school who had read it. It just wasn't a book that was, I guess, circulating in my circles. We never were assigned it. But I do have this very vivid memory of finding it in the library when I was in fifth grade, probably, and just kind of like being shocked by this idea that like nobody knew who the author was. And it was this very simple cover. So I've been waiting like 20 years to finally read it. <laughs> now is your moment. I'm so glad I could bring that to you. What a weird memory though, right? Finally. Totally. Crazy. Yeah. So there's a lot going on with this book sort of outside this book. And I think we should just start there because Abby and I were actually joking before I started recording that you almost don't even need to open the book to fill like a full hour of conversation about Go Ask Alice. Totally. And I will just say that at the time that I read it, I I took it as complete nonfiction. Like, this is truth. This is a real diary from a girl, and it was found, and the story is so tragic. Like, I hook, line, and sinker. I bought it. And I, I actually only in recent adulthood and prompted by the rereading of this sort of started to do some research and pull up the Wikipedia page. And, and I remember like realizing that, okay, maybe this isn't true, but it's all propaganda. It was all like written by a, a woman who was actually born in 1917. I just read today Whoa. and she died in 2012, almost a hundred, but yeah, she was a, she was a, a psychologist, a counselor and a very strict Mormon. So now I'm like, Oh, okay. So I think in this rereading, I, I was picturing it as, you know, Beatrice Sparks, the Mormon counselor. And then it makes the words so different. I'm like, Oh wow. Okay. Beatrice. <laughs> Well, here's a fun fact. So I typically don't do a lot of research on a book that I'm doing for the podcast until after I read it. So my process is I read the book that we've talked about, and then I spend a couple of hours really digging into it before I jump on the recording. So as I mentioned, like this book has sort of not been in my like viewpoint in the last two decades. So I seem to have missed all of the conversation that's gone on about it. And I approached this reading thinking that it was nonfiction. I know I just said that you don't need to open the book to have a conversation about it, but I am going to go ahead and read the introduction. So I'm already uh, disagreeing with myself. I think it's important to read the introduction because it sort of sets up the book itself and the whole controversy around the book. The introduction reads as follows. Go Ask Alice is based on the actual diary of a 15-year-old drug user. It is not a definitive statement on the middle-class teenage drug world. It does not offer any solutions. It is, however, a highly personal and specific chronicle. As such, we hope it will provide insights into the increasingly complicated world in which we live. Names, dates, places, and certain events have been changed in accordance with the wishes of those concerned, the editors. So I read this intro, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is groundbreaking. I can't wait to get into it. I read the intro to my husband and I was like, wait till you hear what I'm reading. I'm kind of embarrassed in hindsight that this was my reaction. (laughs) So I read the whole book. I had all these thoughts about it, annotated all the pages as usual. This morning I sit down to do all my research. And the first thing I find out is that, no, this is, this whole thing was kind of a hoax. Listeners, for those who like me, didn't know about any of this. The book was published in 1971 under this anonymous authorship. And at the time it was like really successful, probably because people were starting to have all these conversations about 
the effects of psychedelics in particular in the 70s. And so it was really praised. It had a great critical response. I read somewhere that it had racked up 18,000 advanced copy orders um, before the book even came out. Like people were excited to read the book and it just became a hit really quickly. I think within a year it had been translated into 16 different languages. This is big stuff. Later in the 70s though, questions about the true authorship of the book started to come up. And as Abby mentioned, it came out that the real author of the book was this woman named Beatrice Sparks, who claims to have truly like put the book together based on an account that she received from a young woman that she'd met at a youth conference somewhere. That seemed to be sort of her first story. Um, She was like, yeah, like this is a real person. She gave me the diary and I published it. So it's all true. Like I'm not lying. Then I read somewhere later on that her second story was that Go Ask Alice is more of like a compilation of a few different diaries of a few different girls and like she mixed them up because she didn't want any one of the girl's parents to like be able to identify and sue and sue but also like as a youth counselor shouldn't you be more concerned about the health and well-being of these children and their parents being aware that they were going through these issues I don't know that's my question and then she talked about how like she couldn't substantiate any of the claims because she'd thrown away all of her transcripts (laughs) come on Beatrice come on Beatrice like journalist to journalist (laughs) That's not how it works. You don't get to do that. And she started like showing up at events and calling herself the editor of the book. So it's all just kind of crazy. And so as I went back through the book a second time after I did this research to kind of like pull out some quotes, I was like, oh shit, this is a totally different book now. Like everything is different. I don't know how I didn't see it before. I know. It's so when you are reading it from the perspective of like a middle-aged woman who is trying to steer the youth away from drug abuse and teen pregnancy. She also wrote another journal from the perspective of a boy who falls into Satanism. So that's... And uh, dies. I think he dies too. Oh yeah. And actually that journal, like a a few teaser pages was printed in the back of the book that I read. So I'm like, okay, Joe, here we go. Don't fall into the lap of the devil. Beatrice really found her niche with these books. Like this is her thing. This is her thing. But like, okay, so on the one hand, it's such a hoax and kind of BS. But on the other hand, like, I don't blame her for trying to write a cautionary tale and, and one that even in, let's see, 97, when I probably read it, it was still being passed around. Um, so I remember like thinking back to the story a lot, like in my, in my youth, um, and being like, Oh my God, remember what happened to Alice? So on one hand, I'm like, okay, Beatrice, this was a little overreaching, but on the other hand, like, okay, if this helped, you know, any sort of kid get scared away from tripping balls on a bunch of acid, then like, all right, uh, I appreciate what you're doing here, Beatrice. I agree. The gist of the diarist's story, and we never actually find out what the diarist's name is, it's not Alice, listeners. The Go Ask Alice title is actually based on lyrics from a Jefferson Airplane song, and those lyrics came from Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, and you know, there's lots of talk about how much drug use played into (laughs) the building of the Alice world, so that's kind of where the Alice idea comes from. Alice is not Speaking of mushrooms. (laughs) Yeah, more mushrooms. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date, all that stuff. Yeah, so the diarist who, we never know her name, she's going through all of these things as a result of getting involved with drugs. She runs away from home. She starts selling drugs. She is raped. She is date raped. She gets involved in prostitution 
addiction. Like there's all of these different things that happen as a result of her getting involved in the drug world. And I think, as you mentioned, like that's sort of the root of the cautionary tale is that these things can spiral very quickly out of control once you sort of dip a toe into a pool that might seem somewhat innocent at first. And I do think that's what Beatrice was trying to express. I had DMs from a few listeners when they saw that I was reading Go Ask Alice who said like, oh my gosh, I never even got near drugs as a result of Go Ask Alice. And also the D.A.R.E. program. I don't know. Did you have D.A.R.E. at your school? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I had some funny conversations about the D.A.R.E. program in my DMs. But I do think that this book worked effectively for a lot of teens if the goal was to really keep them away from drugs. I found an interesting essay in electric literature by an author named Sloane Tannen. I'm going to shout out her book because I just read it. It's called There's a Word for That. So kind of funny that I happened to stumble upon this today. Um, But she writes in this essay about how she feels like Go Ask Alice fueled a lot of her existing anxiety. And she, like me, didn't realize that there was this whole hoax behind the book until she was much older. And then she kind of got mad because she felt as though she'd built her whole life around these fears that weren't actually real. And I would like to share an excerpt from it because I think it's really interesting. She said, so should I be angry with Beatrice Sparks or grateful? Did she save me from the horrors of addiction or prevent me from partaking in the normal feel-good experimentation my peers enjoyed? I think about the trips I didn't take, the drinks I didn't drink, the fun I didn't have. I'm delighted not to find myself a 48-year-old drug addict, but God knows I could have used some lightening up along the way. Yeah, I so I actually am now in recovery. I'm sober two and a half years um, and did struggle with a lot of drug and alcohol addiction. So I read this book and was like, "Mm, Alice, girl, I'm with you. (laughs) So yeah, instead of being a cautionary tale for me, I was like, well, this doesn't sound so bad. I mean, I think it freaked me out until about junior year in high school. And then I was really off to the races. So, uh, you know, I get the sort of spiraling out of control, the, the feelings that she talks about when she's like, I can't not partake in, you know, when it's offered to me. And like that sort of, you know, she would write like, okay, today's the day, like I'm getting serious. I'm going, moving back home. Mom and dad are going to love me again. And I'm going to get good grades and go back to school. And, um, and then it would be like, you know, a week later, like, whoops, I'm back deep into addiction and it was offered to me and I couldn't say no. And like, I, I resonate with that. I get that. I mean, for a long time, I sort of felt really powerless over drugs and alcohol and, and that like, okay, like this, this is what I'm like. Like I just, I I couldn't stop after two gin and tonics ever, even though I was like, well, the last eight times I've blacked out when I got to four, but like this time will be different. And like, it's never different. So I really rereading this, you know, I sort of ached for this character because like I did, you know, even though it's all made up, I could sort of see my own story in hers. And that like, you know, it was, it was good. It was a good reminder to read. It was almost like it bookended my entire drug and alcohol use. Like I read it in seventh grade before, you know, back when I was a goody two shoes, I had done anything. And then I read it again at sort of two and a half years sober. And, um, and that, you know, I got into a lot of shit in the mean, in the intervening years there. And, you know, I'm really lucky 
lucky to have been able to like recognize my own problem and, you know, seek treatment. And I feel like I'm in such a better place now, but it was really interesting to like revisit this book through the lens of recovery and having seen a lot of other people, peers die from this disease and, and go in and out of rehab. And, and I feel really lucky that I have such a great support system and, and that I myself am sober today, but I know that a lot of people aren't and are still struggling and they're out there. So yeah, I ached for this fictional no-name girl. Um, And yeah, it was really, it was lovely to read that, I think, and just get the perspective and gratitude of like where I am now, even though it was all made up. The sort of fictional component actually didn't end up mattering to me in this reading because I was like, oh yeah, like this, this is possible. And in fact, I've seen it in too many true stories of friends around me. So that's sort of the frame of reference, which I approached this book with this time. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and congratulations on two and a half years of sobriety. Thank you. To your point, I did find myself as I was reading through all of these kind of secondary sources about the book, asking myself, at least setting aside this like dishonesty piece, because it's not cool to lie about where a book came from when it very clearly came from this particular woman. Yes, we like take, remember James Fry. Right, exactly. <laughs> like in little pieces. Right, like I'm not supporting dishonesty. I don't think it's cool that the publisher pretended that this book was something that it wasn't for all these years and kind of continued to try to like cover for Beatrice Sparks for a long time. None of that's cool. But if we take that out and if we maybe take out what a lot of people are considering bad writing, does it really matter whether it's real or not? Because I think to your point, this is a book that is a good resource for a lot of kids who are maybe questioning whether they want to experiment with certain drugs at a certain age. I mean, I think especially now, I think it's so much more available to kids um, and kids are getting so many more messages about pretty much everything. And so does it hurt to have a book out there that maybe has a little bit of false advertising around it, but at its heart is sort of well-intentioned as like a piece of guidance that things can get out of control when you allow yourself to get swept into drugs and alcohol. Is that really so wrong? Again, I don't support the dishonesty around it, but the truth is it's like really hard to find a nice word about this book anywhere online. (laughs) I went through about like five or six pages of Google results and it's all just kind of like slamming it. And I don't know that I agree with that. Yeah, me neither. I mean, okay, like it, it is what it is. It is, um, you know, sort of built in this hoax, but I feel like thinking back to seventh grade when I read it for the first time, it's like if I had an old, older person sort of preaching to me like a dare program, like, you know, we'd have this someone older in a black and white t-shirt come in and be like, hey kids, like here's why you shouldn't do drugs. Even like in high school, I remember a cop coming before prom and he um, made some participants wear those beer goggle glasses. Mm -hmm. um, And so you could see how your driving would be impaired. And I remember that just seems so farcical, like, okay, old person, adult, like, don't tell me what to do. Like I've always, I've always bristled at like, don't tell me what to do. So I think there was at least for me and the girls who gossiped about this book in Mrs. Regan's library, like there was a sense of relatability as the character is, you know, 15 or 16 that I think spoke the message more effectively than an adult 
could. Now it's all being written by an adult, but I think I was more receptive to hearing it, which is really the point. But it was also so funny to read again and be like, okay, she does LSD first Mm -hmm. and then she smokes weed for the first time. Like these are reversed. (laughs) Yeah. I was wondering about that myself. I don't have a lot of experience in drug use, but that does seem certainly out of order from anything that I've ever heard in anybody's personal experience. I also was sort of puzzled by the fact that, so she's at this party, the narrator, the diarist is at this party and she's hanging out with all these kids for the first time and she's really enjoying herself. And one of the other kids brings out a tray of sodas. And I say sodas because it said Coke in the book and that made me very confused. I was like, oh, are we going straight to cocaine? So I'm going to say sodas. And I believe there were 14 cups of soda. And the boy that's sitting next to the diarist says... 10 of them are laced, essentially. Um, And it's sort of like luck of the draw if you get one of them. And I just remember feeling like, is she not concerned about this? Because this is a kid that seems to come from a pretty straight-laced home. Her parents are still married. She has, you know, these grandparents in her life who are very involved. If anything, she seems like a little bit of a goody-two-shoes. She's very concerned with what everybody thinks about her. She is trying to be a good example to her younger siblings. She doesn't seem particularly social, like all of the friends that she's talked about having before are not partiers. So for me, one thing that like definitely didn't track was the fact that she sort of was just like, oh, okay, there's LSD in these sodas. Sure. Okay. Like there was, there wasn't even a moment where she was like, I was wondering if I should leave. I thought about calling my mom. So that for me was the first moment where I was like, I don't know, this seems a little off. Yeah. But I will say from my own experience, like I, when I think back to like where my addiction really like rooted itself, it was always in that I wasn't entirely ever feeling comfortable in my own skin. Like I didn't really feel like I was popular. I wasn't also like super smart. I wasn't a great athlete. Like I didn't really feel like I had some niche where I belonged. And so like that feeling of like uncomfortability it prompted me to then like do a lot of things. So I would lie. I like once told my whole fifth grade class that I got the lead in Annie and there was no production of Annie even happening anywhere in the tri-state area. (laughs) And then it was like, Oh, when I drank and like did, you know, drugs that took me out of my brain, my anxious brain of like, you don't belong. You're not cool. You, no boy will ever like you kind of that fervor drugs and alcohol took me out of that immediately. And then suddenly I was like, I'm cool. I'm, you know, I'm cute. Boys like me. I can talk to anyone. And the anxiety just like evaporated. So to me, this character never really feels fully comfortable in her own skin. So that was something where like, I'm like, okay, like I could see, I could see that. Like she doesn't really feel like she has a ton of friends, like that she's feeling super settled and grounded in where she is. And the other thing that felt very real is, you know, she loses both of these grandparents in this Mm. book. And um, I know my own drug use and drinking really multiplied after the loss of my dad. And I just didn't want to be present in the world because it hurt. And I just wanted to numb that pain. And so to me, when her sort of grandparents pass away in quick succession, um, you know, it acts as like a numbing device, I think, these drugs, because she just doesn't want to feel that. And I get that. 
that. So yeah, those were two moments where I'm like, okay, yeah, I could, I could see this, but just start with pot and then go to LSD. Yeah. That just, that to me was sort of just betraying Beatrice Sparks is maybe like lack of real knowledge about how things go down in high school and with drugs. Um, That just seems just like a lack of information. I think that she could have done a little bit more research there. Um, Yeah. Come on, Beatrice. Yeah. Like if you're hanging out with all these kids at youth conferences, somebody is going to have to be able to explain this to you. Yeah. I do think that there are some things that she does well, to your point. I think that she does a really great job of demonstrating how much this character wants to fit in. And that's fueled by the fact that she's like the new kid. And we read a lot of new kid stories for the podcast. The one thing that was kind of weird in this one was that the diarist was like pumped to move. And that also to me was another one of like, I don't know, this feels like an adult could have written this because most kids, even if they're like excited for a new start or if they're super extroverted, like they still have some sadness about leaving home. And this character literally was like, I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. That's a quote, everyone. So she's already kind of feeling uncomfortable in the social scene at her current high school. And now she's preparing to move to another high school and she's setting herself up for that. And all of this really starts to happen when she moves back to her hometown for the summer to spend time with her grandparents because the friend that she's made at her new school, Beth, is going away to camp and she doesn't want to be home alone. So she goes to stay with her grandparents. And for the first time ever, it seems, this kind of cool girl from her old school approaches her, I think at the grocery store maybe, and is like, I'm having a party. You should come hang out with us. And I think that that sort of a conversation and those kinds of anxieties don't necessarily always lead kids down the road that we see in this book. Like it doesn't necessarily always lead to a kid experimenting with drugs to find acceptance. But I do think that this is an experience that so many young readers can relate to to some extent. And I think that the author does a pretty good job of communicating that through these diary entries. I mean, it's not all heavy handed. Like some of it feels authentic. Some of it feels like the voice of a teen who feels a little bit lost and confused. And um, I thought that that was not a bad representation in this book. No, I mean, like everyone's excited to get invited to the popular girl's house and there. She's like, I feel like I've made it. And then, yeah, it was so interesting her making friends and then sloughing some friends off. And um, yeah, I mean, that felt, I remember just like coming back, you know, eighth grade and then you have the summer and then you come back at ninth grade. And at least in my school, like everyone was different friends with different people. And there was a lot of switching around. I mean, I think my school was so small that we just had to move around to not kill each other. But I thought the the social anxiety part of this book felt very real and like, ugh, just like, oh my God, it, just rereading it was like, this is so painful to read. I pulled out a quote from the narrator's first experience at a quote unquote drug party, the party we described earlier with the LSD in the Coke in the soda, not yeah. the cocaine. <laughs> Um, Because I think it sort of expresses maybe why she was so ready to jump in with this crowd. It says, The kids at Jill's were so friendly and relaxed and at ease that I immediately felt at home with them. They accepted me like I had always been one of their crowd and everyone seemed happy and unhurried. I loved the atmosphere. It was great, great, great. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But then eventually these friends sort of turn on her and there's a lot of betrayal, it Mm -hmm. seems. She's always sort of like one step ahead of the betraying friend. It does feel like there, I mean, the pacing of the book, there's a lot of running and moving and moving out. And I mean, rereading this, I was sort of like, why would you leave home 
for San Francisco. You have nice parents. They pay for your food. You know, like you could have just maintained your drug use on the DL and stayed in your nice bed. But then I was also like kind of rooting for her. They start a business. Like there are two girls on the town alone. I'm like, oh, this isn't so bad. (laughs) Is this what we were all like terrified of? (laughs) Yeah, she meets this kind of funky, independent fellow teen named Chris. And as you mentioned, she runs away. They go to San Francisco. um, And then things get a little too rough in San Francisco. They meet an older woman who at first seems glamorous and fabulous. And she starts to invite them to parties, but she introduces them to heroin. um, And she and her boyfriend rape both girls. And the girls wake up and they really had no idea what had happened. And when it finally occurs to them what they've been through, they take off to go to Berkeley and they start their own business. As you mentioned, that's pretty cool. And I also was like, how is this allowed? Like, does this happen? Maybe it happened in the 70s. I don't know. You go girls, entrepreneurs, love it. But the pacing, it was was a little quick. Like in sitting down this morning to get ready to talk to you and like trying to plot out some of the major things that happened in the second half of the book in particular, I was like, I think I missed some of this stuff. Yeah. You know, they're in and out and then she's back at school and it's like no time has ever passed. No teacher's like, oh, you missed the midterm. Like, sorry. You know, it was just that part felt very fast and furious um, and that, that she could sort of dip back into her old life after like leading this life in Berkeley and having to make ends meet without any help and never calling her parents and then she's like oh, I'm back at home for Christmas like whoa 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 where are the consequences here of running away I was very confused about the fact that her parents were never angry. Yeah, me too. They just welcome her back. And I think, like, I got the impression from early in the book that her parents were kind of disengaged. Her dad works all the time. He's a professor, and he just seems to be busting his butt constantly to support the family. And her mom is around, but... I got the sense she's like just trying to be the cool mom. Like she just wants to like go shopping and she tries to have harder conversations with the narrator occasionally. But like I didn't get the sense that she was sort of authentically engaged with what was going on with her daughter. So it didn't seem like completely hard to believe for me that like they wouldn't necessarily be 100% on top of what was going on in her life. But it is hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that like any set of responsible parents wouldn't kind of lose their shit if their teenage daughter ran away and didn't stay in touch with them not one not two but three times like this keeps happening and it's not like she's just running away she's running away she's living outside like she's living homeless with all these other teens in San Francisco she's continuing to experiment with drugs harder drugs really as we go she is engaging in prostitution to fuel her habit like there's all of these things going on and I couldn't figure out like if we were meant to believe that her parents didn't know about any of it like I couldn't figure out from the diary if her parents were kind of clued into what was actually going on or if they just thought that she was like bored with her life and wanted to get away I I don't think that the author did a great job of like driving that part of the story home in a clear way yeah I mean I remember just like upsetting my parents was one of my major driving forces in life as to like why I was on the straight and narrow, you know, until I was sort of alone in college and didn't have to report back for curfew. So then I was wondering like, well, what is Beatrice Spark 
Morris's intention of like keeping mm-hmm. these parents sort of very mellow. And then I was wondering, I, I sort of took this in a whole different direction, but I was like, I wonder if this is Beatrice's way of being like, you know, God will always love you if you totally screw up. And um, as sort of her like parable of the parents, like just always encircling her back into this loving environment. But I think any parent would be like, um, where have you been? Like, are you okay? What happened? And I think some of the love that they eventually show is when they commit her to this hospital at the very end. So I had, when I was in the middle of rereading this book, I listened to the Paul F. Tompkins. He's got like a great album and the last track on the album is called Go Ask Alice. Hmm. And he makes this funny joke about like, you know, if you haven't, if you haven't listened to the Paul F. Tompkins track, definitely go listen to it. But he's like, um, this book, you know, we were all obsessed with it in the seventies and turns out it's total phony baloney. And the, the reason I know that is because of the way the author describes this mental institution. She calls it a freak wharf. And he's like, so bad. No, at no time in history did the, did the kids ever say, Hey, you're in a freak wharf. He's like, this Beatrice Sparks was really grasping at straws as to the lingo that the kids were using. So I listened to that before I got to the freak wharf part. And so then it really stood out of my mind when I, when I got there, but she does end up sort of being committed. Like I think her parents eventually are like, all right, she's, she's a danger to herself. What's the most loving thing we can do, which is in their, in their minds to sort of keep her from bay in this, in this hospital, in this freak wharf. And I will say something else that I think that Beatrice Sparks did pretty well is like, you know, earlier in the book, prior to her parents making that decision, I think that she did a pretty good job of illustrating like the way it feels to be a teenager and to be testing boundaries with your parents, even before she starts getting involved in drugs, even sort of testing conversational boundaries with your parents and like trying to assert your independence. I think that's something that is a pretty universal experience for most people. And I really liked the way that this author, you know, the diary author or Beatrice Sparks, however you want to think about it. I liked the way that she expressed that. And there's a scene later in the book after um, she comes back, I believe after she comes back from recovery, if not, it's sort of at a time when she's like back between stints running away and feeling pretty good. (laughs) Either way, it's like a good moment. And she says, I feel grown up. I am no longer in the category with the children. I am one of the adults and I love it. They have accepted me as an individual, as a personality, as an entity. I belong. I am important. I am somebody. Adolescents have a very rocky, insecure time. Grown-ups treat them like children and yet expect them to act like adults. They give them orders like little animals, then expect them to react like mature and always rational, self-assured persons of legal stature. It is a difficult, lost, vacillating time. Perhaps I have passed over the worst part. I certainly hope so, because I surely would not have either the strength or the fortitude to get through that number again. I love that, and I think it expresses like a lot of what I felt as a teen. Like My parents want me to act a certain way, but I don't feel like they're treating me me with the respect that that sort of behavior merits and I don't know how to communicate that and I don't know how many rules I should be following versus how many I should be testing and like how honest is too honest to get with my parents and when do I get to move from the kids table to the grown-ups table and again as I was saying earlier about the whole um, experience of like 
wanting to be accepted socially. I think that the experience of like trying to figure out how to assert yourself when you're a teenager in this weird in-between time can end in a lot of different ways. And for this particular character, it led her to a path of like exploring things that ultimately were not good for her. And it was a much more dramatic set of circumstances than I think happens for most teens. But I think at the core, it's like a universal experience. And that quote from the book for me really wrapped up how well Beatrice Sparks expressed it. It certainly doesn't sound like the words of a teen, but I actually, and this might sound naive, but like I was thinking while I was reading it and I thought it was actually still a diary. I was like, I do think that there's sort of evolution in language and maybe this is sort of the way that a teen in the 60s or 70s would have expressed herself. And so that was kind of how I was explaining it away. But yeah, I thought that she did that well also. Yeah, I um, I mean, who hasn't felt that and who hasn't, you know, tried to be more mature in, you know, not just in drug and alcohol use, but in all sorts of things, um, like whether you're having a lemonade stand or like trying to babysit to earn your own money, like all of those markers of adulthood is sort of what we're, we're working towards. Um, even, you know, when you're like graduating college, it's like, Oh, I, you know, I have to get to real life. Like what is real life? Mm -hmm. Um, so it's all of this sort of like waiting to begin anticipation that I think she definitely encapsulates so well. I mean, I know I, I felt that I couldn't wait to get to college and have like life begin. Mm -hmm. Um, and in a lot of ways it was like, I, I can't wait to drink. Like I used to think that like, I can't wait to be old enough to drink or like, can't wait to sort of like have a Cosmo as I get ready with my friends, sort of like drugs and alcohol were definitely a marker, at least for me of that, like you've achieved this sort of place in life. So yeah, that did feel really real. And also, yeah, I, the language in this book is so funny. The seventies slang uh, I was obsessed with, but also she sometimes writes like question marks for the day. I'm like, just go look at what day it is. Like, do you have a calendar? And sort of like that motif of like, I'm too high to know what day it is. Like, I felt like that was Beatrice really like, she's out of it, girls. She's out of it. She doesn't even know what day it is. Things are spiraling out of control. Don't you want to know what it says in your day planner, ladies? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, I remember like reading this in seventh grade. And, and when I revisited it now, I was like, there's a big moment that is so painful and so graphic and I remember it being hard to read and when I reread it I couldn't I couldn't remember what that was until she pulls her hair out and then I was like oh this is it Mm. Okay. That to me was like the sort of, I'm out of my mind so much that all I can do is self-harm and the, um, the imagining that there are bugs all over her. That was still to this day, like just, wow. Okay. So the, I was reading, 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 like, where is this part that so viscerally affected me as a, as a little kid? And then I got to the, you know, there's bugs all over me. They're under my nails and hurt, but she loses two nails off of her fingers because she's scratching herself so bad I'm like oh there it is okay I, I read so much commentary about how poorly written the book is and I'm not saying it's great literature but I do think that the sections of the book that are describing the narrator's either really good trips or really bad trips are not horribly written, at least to the extent that they are so visceral and so sensory that they elicit a response. I mean, I don't know if that makes them quote unquote great writing, but it's really 
interesting language and I didn't hate that. I thought that it really was like evocative and it made you feel something. Yeah, which I think, I mean, at the end of the day, that was the whole point is to feel, to have a a feeling about this character and like what she's going through and to be so repulsed by it that like, okay, I'm not going to pick up and and do drugs. Now, I will say the good trips, I was like, hey, this sounds really fun. Yeah. (laughs) recovering addict over here but I was like oh I thought this whole book was bad like I thought it was just one bad trip after another but you know it's not all bad (laughs) so I was like oh our girl Alice she's okay well I read somewhere I forget in which essay I'll include links to all of the essays and commentary that I read about the book in the show notes for this episode but I read a line somewhere about how it seems as if the publisher and theoretically Beatrice Sparks sort of want to have it both ways with this book like they want it to be a cautionary tale and they want to be moralistic but they also want to have like a little bit of grit and glamour associated with the world that the narrator is living in and I think that that's true to say yeah I think so too and I guess like if it was so one-sided people would not have picked it up and pre-ordered it and obsessed about it um in the ways that they they did so i think like you have to have it a little like intriguing and something for the girls to gossip over and and pass it on but i'm wondering and any listener of your show should write in and tell us this but is this still in libraries today like if if i know a seventh grader would they be allowed to rent this from the library it's been challenged a lot i think in the 2000s it was number 18 on the ALA's list of the most challenged books, which I get. Yeah. I mean, I'm not one for censorship, obviously, but I do see how this is sensitive content, especially for younger readers and knowing what we know now about kind of the origin story of the book, the fact that it's not even real makes it a little bit complicated. I can see parents and librarians and teachers maybe being a little bit more open to sharing this with their students and children if they at least knew that it was based in like 100% real life experience and the fact that it sort of has this like funky backstory maybe sort of raised a different set of eyebrows quite frankly I can't believe that it was in my elementary school library because I grew up in like a fairly conservative part of Pennsylvania um and I think an elementary schooler is definitely too young for a lot of this content at least like without sort of the guidance of somebody who's reading it aloud to them but I'd be curious if this is still like an active part of classroom discussions or if it's ever assigned to young readers or students. I know we have a lot of teachers and librarians that listen to SSR, so please do let us know um, kind of what your take is on this book. I'd be curious to find out. I remember Mrs. Regan, the librarian, sort of like uh, shaking her head with disdain, like, oh, you girls, this is like just one step up from total trash. And I cannot explain the 20-week waiting list. And perhaps you'd like to read, you know, something like Tom Sawyer, which could really enrich your life in a different way. But we were all like drawn to this deliciously bad story of this girl. So, you know, I don't think any of us would have read it if it were quote unquote, you know, good for us. Like you're told to take your medicine. Who wants to do that? Yeah. It felt like we were pulling the wool over someone's eyes a little bit. This is a totally weird comparison and I'm not equating the two things, but it almost reminds me in terms of like the hoax behind it and it kind of being trash everybody being into it it's kind of like the hills because at the end of the hills you know they pulled the backdrop away and everybody was like it was fake this whole time 
But people talked about The Hills for years after. It was sort of this whole other conversation, you know, once the show was over about, like, how dare they deceive us? Like, is this still a good show? People talked about it so much that they're back. So sometimes a hoax is not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily a direct ticket to, like, ruining what you've created. Sometimes it just, like, fuels the fire a little bit. (laughs) Totally. I mean, it's even now in 2019 that we know better. It's gotten a reboot. So, you know, like, people still have an appetite for this. But also in researching this book, there's a whole movie version of Go Ask Alice, which I'm, like, dying to, like, Netflix, do you have this movie? I need to see it. With Um, William Shatner, I think, is what I read. Yes. So that's going to be some interesting viewing some some night when I've completely binged everything else. I bet you can watch it for free on YouTube because I think it was a direct-to-TV deal, and I find that a lot of those movies are available like in chunks on YouTube. Oh, nice. Okay, good. These are the weird pieces of knowledge that I've racked up during this podcast. I would be remiss um, sort of wrapping up this conversation if I didn't mention the ending, which especially when I thought it was real completely blew my freaking mind. Again, I will open the book and share it with you word for word the epilogue goes like this the subject of this book died three weeks after her decision not to keep another diary her parents came home from a movie and found her dead they called the police and the hospital but there was nothing anyone could do was it an accidental overdose a premeditated overdose no one knows and in some ways that question isn't important what must be of concern is that she died and that she was only one of thousands of drug deaths that year which is a really intense and heavy and abrupt ending particularly because things seem to have been going really well up until that point like she had gone through recovery she had this great support network she's dating this really responsible and nice boy who seems to be like really helping her through this process and has been really open and so again I think that speaks a little bit to like the not so great plotting of this book like there's there should have been some other clues maybe that things were going to turn around but I think especially in the context of the conversations that we're having now in 2019 about unfortunately the the opioid epidemic and all of these terrible things that are happening um, around the country to people of all ages I I think that readers today probably can maybe absorb that a little bit differently it may be sadly it's probably a little less shocking to some readers but I like what it says that it like doesn't really matter whether it was accidental or intentional like what matters is that she died and that's a problem like however it happened we as a society as a culture need to figure out how to make that not happen so much anymore and again regardless of whether or not this is a hoax I don't really care who wrote it I don't care where it comes from I don't care that some of the language is a little heavy-handed and propaganda-y like that sentiment matters yeah and I So I get to the end, and I had always remembered that she died at the end, but I was so annoyed that it happened. We don't actually get to see it, and it's in this bullshit epilogue, and kind of like, oh, here's a footnote, she died. So that, as I was reading it, just like as a reader, and like, is this a good plotting device, like you said, that annoyed me. But... I will say that, just like you said, like it, it does serve as a good reminder of like the power of addiction, and um, and oftentimes when people get sober for a little while, they you know stop doing their drug of choice, and then they relapse. Their tolerance is so much lower than it was the last time they were using, which is sort of in their mind of like, oh, I can take you know, this many hits or like have this many drinks. And and before I was fine with eight shots in a row or something. And because your tolerance is weighed down, you just like 
your body's just not ready for it. And so often you can kill yourself with a lower amount of what you were used to using back in your, your real use days. So that I'm like, okay, that is a real thing. And so that maybe that's what happened here. But I wanted to see it. I wanted to see the progression of her disease and like, how does she go from like dating Joel, the nice guy, and she's out and back with her family and like, I'm not going to do another diary because like, I'm good to be like, uh, we come home from the movies and she's dead. Um, just from like a book perspective, I just wanted to see that. Unfortunately, I think that the inclination for a lot of readers would probably be, you know, if this epilogue hadn't been worded the way it was, I think the inclination, unfortunately, is often to be like, oh, well, this person died and used drugs it must have been an overdose and I as much as I would have liked to know more about what happened to her I appreciated the way that this was worded and I think it's like a good reminder for people in their real lives to be like that question doesn't matter doesn't need to be the first thing that you say in response to news that somebody you know has used drugs has died like that's not what's important here and so I would have liked from like just a plot perspective to know more but kind of like broader social issues wise I thought that that was a nice way to wrap it up and so for that Beatrice Sparks um, I say thank you yeah and thank you. taking all of this into account we've talked about the book itself we've talked about the story around the book itself um, I'd love to know if you found yourself loving and appreciating the book more now as an adult on this reread or if it's somehow been ruined for you if it hasn't held up I think it did hold up in my opinion I mean um, I was able to sort of like huh chuckle about, you know, the antiquated language and sort of the um, don't do drugs undertone. But actually, I think I took more from this book, actually, like being in recovery and seeing other friends and people struggle with addiction, that it, it does, it is very real. Um, and so, you know, I was sort of able to push aside the like, is this fiction? Is this nonfiction? Is this realistic? Would someone do LSD before smoking weed and sort of take it as a full story of addiction? And and I, th I thought that was powerful. And so, I mean, it's interesting to read it as a 33-year-old and say like, the shock value that it packed when I was in seventh grade isn't necessarily there. So in some ways, as an adult, I've become like a little more numb to some of these things like, oh, of prostitution. And not that I've experienced that personally, but you, you see it in more media. Right. But I did, I, I sort of respected the story for, for what it was. And um, it was a good, enjoyable, funny, sort of tongue in cheek, funny um, reread. Well, thank you for rereading reading it for the show. Thank you for being so honest about your own experience. I think it really helped us to have that much more of an interesting conversation about this book. Other than Go Ask Alice, I'm wondering if there are any other books that you've read lately that you would recommend to our listeners. They do not have to be YA. Oh, yes. Um, I know so you have some. I know it. I know. Over summer vacation, I got to read um, six books, which is amazing. That's a dream. Um, I'm so jealous. It sounds like the best vacation ever. And I paired this with actually another drug memoir called High Achiever by Tiffany Jenkins. Okay. Um, so I read these sort of back to back and that looks at Tiffany's time spent in jail and her addiction to pills and um, her subsequent recovery. So it was kind of cool to read a, a present day story and, and a 70s story. But then I also have really lately enjoyed City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert. Such a delicious read. And The Wedding Party by Jasmine Guillory. Just like summer reading at its very best. 
I have City of Girls set aside for my own vacation in two weeks. I'm like resisting the urge to start it now because I know I need to read it on a beach. So yes, that makes me very excited. Fabulous to read like all in one fell swoop in like three days. You'll love it. I can't wait. I will include links to all of your recommendations in the show notes. I will also include a link to Go Ask Alice for those who, like me, have never read it. I will also, of course, include a link to Read It Forward. I highly recommend that you all check it out. Abby, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for rereading this book and for chatting about it with me on this gray, gloomy New York Tuesday morning. Well, thanks so much, Allie. It was so fun to talk with you and uh, get to reread this book from my past. So thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.